The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by trader, analyst, and author John Rubino to discuss the global economic collapse. He is the founder of dollarcollapse.com and the co-author of The Money Bubble, among many other publications. He's previously been a guest on Geopolitics and Empire, and we welcome him back. Thanks for being here, John. Great to be back. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right, considering the circumstances. Uh, <laughs> I, I would like to, before we start, point listeners to a recent excellent hour-long interview that uh, you gave to the Health Ranger over at Brighteon.com. Uh, all of our interviews uh, as well are also posted to Brighteon mm. because of the censorship that we've been experiencing uh, on YouTube. Um, and so for this interview, I wanted to get an update uh, on the economic collapse uh, from you, but I don't want to wish uh, to spend too much time on why we're experiencing a collapse because you've kind of been beating that dead horse uh, for years. We kind of know the why. It should be clear, you know, debt, central banks, the lack of sound money, etc. And I'm kind of more curious to know about what you see is happening right now, what is going to happen in the near future, and how individuals can best prepare for the dark winter that's coming. So, John, there are countless indicators that are flashing red at the moment. Uh, Ray Dalio gave a recent uh, interview that was interesting where he said the bottom has completely dropped out of the economy and we are in a total breakdown. It's 1930, essentially. We have inflation of every type going through the roof. We have a large portion of Americans, and I'm sure people from around the world, uh, not paying their bills, unemployed. Uh, there are reports of 28 million Americans who may soon be evicted for not being able to pay for their rent or mortgage bills. We have the big tech stock bubble reaching the heights of the 1999.com uh, bubble. Where do you see us as currently located within this global uh, economic storm? Where, where you can pick where you'd like to start. Okay. Well, well, there there was always going to be something that came along to to pop the financial bubble that has been expanding basically since the end of World War II, and um, you know it could have been a, a financial thing like. Deutsche Bank's derivatives book blowing up or, or Italy going bankrupt or some, you know, some big crisis in the U.S. that spread to the rest of the world or a war or, you know, it, it was going to be something that threw the financial world into chaos and forced the governments of the world to basically bail out everybody in sight, which would then kind of be the end of the process, at least in, um, in the sound money community script for how we were going to play out. Now, the thing that came along to pop the bubble was a pandemic, which was kind of a low probability event, but always possible. You know, we've created the conditions for, uh, for various kinds of pandemics to spread through the world. So this one just happened to come along now. And uh, so, so now we're playing out according to the script where the governments of the world are running massive deficits and bailing out pretty much everybody that you can think of. And, and a lot of people who shouldn't have been bailed out in the first place are, are feeding at the trough too. Um, and what that's doing is turbocharging the debt accumulation process. We've been taking on more debt year after year after year, um, really since 1971, when we went off the last vestiges of the gold standard. And um, eventually that debt was going to blow up on us. And now we're taking on so much more debt at such a rapid pace that that brings the, the moment of the, uh, the explosion that much closer. And, you know, it's possible that Ray Dalio is right 
and that this is the end. Right now, the bottom is falling out and the global financial system is going to spin out of control. Or it's possible that um, central banks being very good at fooling people into thinking that things are basically okay, uh, have a few more tricks up their sleeve. Uh, you know, it's, it's possible that we'll go to, for instance, negative interest rates worldwide. It's possible that governments will be able to get away with running deficits of 10 or 15% of GDP for a few more years. Um, those things are possible. Uh, and, and since we've done so many extreme things in the, the previous decade and gotten away with it, I wouldn't say for certain that the next batch of tricks won't work for a while. Uh, but either way, I mean, we're, we're heading for um, a breakdown of the fractional reserve banking fiat currency system that we put into place after World War II and, and, and really strengthened and expanded after 1971. Uh, so it's going to end. And um, whether it ends this year or five years from now is not all that important in the context of the fact that it's going to end at some point. So... Um, the fact that the timing is hard to figure out makes investing for it trickier than it would be otherwise. I mean, if we could see the end of this and know when it was going to happen, then load up on gold and silver, short every financial asset you can think of, and then just make a fortune. You know, that the, the big short and the, uh, the gold and silver bull markets are both out there. And they will happen at the end of this process, but we, we don't know when the process is going to end. So we don't know whether stocks are going to continue to go up from here for a while. You know, like, like you said, we've already created a, um, an equities bubble that is pretty much comparable to the biggest equity bubbles in history, which is astounding when you think about it. You know, we've got depression level unemployment. Um, we've got panicked governments around the world doing incredibly extreme things and stocks keep going up. You know, now, right, right now we have on the S&P 500 in the US, more stocks trading at above 10 times revenues than we did in 1999 when the tech stock bubble was creating epic valuation imbalances. Um, so we're back there, you know, we're in, in terms of stock valuation, we're back at the most highly um, overvalued place that we've ever been. So just looking at that, you'd think short all the stocks in the S&P 500 and we've got a major crash coming, which by the way, I'm doing some of, you know, I'm shorting stuff right now. I'm not, not happily at the moment, but uh, this is just too hard to pass up based on history. But again, because we've departed from past history, and we're doing things we've never done before, it's possible that some of the results will be contrary to what history tells us should happen. Uh, and one, one of the big things that I think is coming that's very new is central banks are going to start buying equities in a big way pretty soon. And if they do that, then, uh, you know, it used to be that the dumb money that comes in at right at the end of the cycle is corporate share buybacks and retail investors, right? The, the guys who just couldn't wait anymore and couldn't pass up that easy money and they get in right at the end. And that's a sign that the, that the stock market is going to tank. But now we have a new, bigger kind of dumb money uh, in the form of central banks creating unlimited amounts of fiat currency and using it to buy equities. So um, that kind of changes the calculus because we don't know the effect of that much new money coming into the system. So anyhow, sorry, long-winded answer. And the uh, the short version of the answer is that, yeah, things are going to blow up pretty soon. <laughs> you mentioned the um, 
the pandemic, uh, COVID. So uh, as you said, you know, we, we know that the, all of the bubbles, the debt bubble, the bond bubble, pension bubble, et cetera, were, were on the cusp of uh, popping. But I can't help but wonder if the responses of all governments uh, of the entire world to COVID-1984, as I like to call it, have mm. made this inevitable economic crash uh, so much uh, worse than it would have otherwise uh, been. Some analysts have said that the pandemic will provide a force majeure to free governments and corporations from uh, some of their obligations or, and, and debts. And so what's your take on COVID-1984, uh, the lockdowns, and the effect that the, the, the response by the governments uh, has had on the economy? Because people have been prevented from uh, working. I know countries like Peru, the government is not lo- allowing its people to, to work, and they're literally starving and it's the same story in many other countries so what are your thoughts on the effects of covid well i'm not a a virologist or an epidemiologist so i i don't have the right to an express to express an opinion about whether the virus is really what they're telling us it is and uh, you know relative death rates versus um, infection rates and things like that. So I, I, I don't know whether these lockdowns were scientifically justified, but they certainly had the effect of, of you know, shutting down big parts of everybody's economy. So that, that pushed us from rapid but unsustainable growth, which is where we were last year, into basically a 1930s-style depression, almost overnight. Uh, and the idea that we can come back out of that, you know, if we cut interest rates by a quarter point or we um, lessen some of the lockdowns, a lot of, for instance, the restaurants that have closed are never coming back. You know, they're gone. And, and uh, uh, how, how long will it take for airline travel and cruise ships and amusement parks and, and the existing restaurants that, that survive to, to come back to their old levels of revenue? It's, it's going to be a while. So th- this is a... Um, dramatic decline in economic growth that will take a long time to, to um, go away, assuming it ever goes away. You know, if, um, if these were normal times and everybody wasn't already wildly over leveraged, then it's possible we could recover from something like this in a, in a matter of a couple of years. But we are so over leveraged that um, you know, as I said earlier, this is more of something that comes along to pop an already existing bubble than a, a huge problem in its own right. You know, a, a pandemic is, you know, this is a new, a new thing for us, but it's something we could get beyond if we were healthy going into it. The fact that we're not healthy going into it means, you know, we're sort of like a, um, a person with a lot of underlying problems who catches um, COVID-19. You know, they're much more likely to die because of their underlying problems rather than because of COVID-19. You know, it's just a combination of those things that kills you. Well, the, the global economy is kind of like that. You know, we're, we're um, sort of like a person who's vastly overweight, has diabetes, has heart trouble, and is prone to strokes. And then we get really sick from something else. You know, it's, it's highly likely that we won't survive in our current form um, and I, I think that's the most likely way that this plays out. You know, the, the pandemic pops the bubble. The bubble then bursts and forces us to, you know, to go some, to go some kind of a reset. In other words, uh, we're going to have to change the monetary system into something that is sustainable because what we have now is clearly not sustainable. It, uh, it encourages everybody at every level of every major society to take on too much debt. 
And debt basically works the same way for countries as it does for individuals. Although there are a lot of economists who disagree with that, they're wrong. <laughs> you know, when you, when you borrow too much money, your life spins out of control. That's just how it is for um, a government or an individual or a family. And we have borrowed way too much money at every level of every major society. So um, the bubble has popped. And now we have to see what the process of the bubble bursting is like. And we, we can't know for sure how it plays out, but a lot of bubbles have, have burst in the past and uh, they all have similar characteristics, which is um, a crash in financial asset prices, a dramatic drop in economic growth, um, a dramatic increase in government's response via you know, big deficits and lower interest rates. Uh, with the difference being now, you know, we already have really low interest rates. How, how much further can interest rates go down? We're already running um, massive, historically unprecedented deficits. Uh, how much higher can they go? And those are the things we don't know. You know can you have negative 3% interest rates across the yield curve and still function? I don't know. You know? And uh, economists used to say no. There was a thing called the zero bound, which was uh, the level at which, which was zero, the level at which interest rates can't go because below that it distorts financial activity to the point where the cure is worse than the disease. Uh, well, a lot of countries went to negative interest rates and they, they kind of sort of survived. So that means that now there's a thing called the effective lower bound, which is this lower or a low interest rate, which we can't go beyond, but we don't know what it is. You know, it's a, it's a extremely low rate, you know, it's a negative rate, but we don't know how negative. And that's what we'll find out this time around, because governments are going to have no choice but to ease monetarily really dramatically. I mean, they're already doing it, but they're going to have to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And that means, at least in part, lower interest rates, which means negative interest rates, since everybody's either close to zero or in negative territory already. Uh, so that's where it gets really interesting. You know, we don't know what any of this stuff does because we've never tried it before. But, uh, you know, most people suspect that what it does is going to be really bad. So the really bad stuff is still out there. You know, what we have now is, is bad, but not as horrendous as what is coming when the bubble really completely bursts. And I, I suspect that, uh, you know, what we're doing now is going to focus all the pressure on currencies. In other words, if we're pushing interest rates to negative levels and creating huge amounts of new currency, then the value of those currencies will be called into question at some point. And when that happens, you know, when the dollar starts to fall, for instance, then that takes away the final tool that governments have to manipulate markets. You know, if you can't benefit your economy by creating new dollars or by lowering interest rates, then what can you do? And the answer is really not much of anything. You just have to let market forces play out at that point. And, uh, you know, since we're so over leveraged, market forces will be brutal this time. So you mentioned the dollar. Uh, there's been a lot of debate. Um, we've had people talk about this uh, milkshake theory uh, of, of the dollar, and it's going to still keep going strong for a while. Uh, and then, you know, there's been this debate since forever of the U.S. dollar status uh, as the world reserve. Uh, what do you think? Will it hold out much longer or will we see? I mean, I don't think we'll see the, the dollar perhaps die exactly, but perhaps decline dramatically in, in stature. And you think, you know, people have been talking about it making way for an IMF SDR global currency or a basket of uh, currencies. W what are your thoughts on the future of the dollar? Yeah, there, there are 
two or three important points, and I, and I hope I can remember to get to them all. Um, one is that when when someone says, "Well, the dollar is strong," they're measuring it against other currencies, which are also just fiat currencies, which are being very badly managed by their their governments. Um, so, you know, a strong dollar relative to the euro and um, the British pound is is not necessarily a strong currency. It's just relatively strong compared to these other really weaker weak currencies. And if you if you, for instance, um, put up a chart of all the major currencies versus gold, you see that they're all dropping in value, and they have been continuously dropping in value or irregularly dropping in value since 1971. So the dollar will continue to lose value relative to real stuff. But it might go up versus even crappier fiat currencies that are going down at a um, a faster rate. Um, so when you say strong dollar, it's important to to understand that it's it's only strong relative to other extremely weak things. You know, it's not strong relative to real stuff because it's falling versus real stuff. Um, and at some point, um, it stops functioning as a global reserve currency because it's falling at a, an accelerating rate. You know, if we're, if we're doing things um, in a bigger way that used to make the dollar fall, now that we're doing it in a bigger way, it'll make the dollar fall faster against real stuff. And we're seeing it in the gold market right now already where, where gold is back in a bull market. You know, it's a couple hundred bucks in the US versus it's all time, away from its all time high. And it's already at all time highs versus most other major currencies. So we're already in a fairly extreme example of what happens when currencies are devalued aggressively by their governments. It's just being hidden by the fact that we're measuring all these currencies against each other. Um, so they, they look relatively stable, you know, when they're all being measured against things that are also weak. Now, the, the, um, the next stage in the process, in other words, when we do the inevitable monetary reset, and we, we redesigned the global monetary system, a lot of people think we'll, we'll go to um, special drawing rights from the IMS, that will be, or the IMF, that will be our new global currency. But all special drawing rights are, is a basket of existing currencies. So it's not clear how you make a, um, um, a reserve quality currency out of a bunch of no longer reserve quality currencies. It's sort of like what happened in the uh, the housing bubble when they were taking really crappy mortgages and bundling them together into mortgage-backed bonds, which were rated AAA, but they weren't really AAA assets. You know, they, uh, um, they, they soon crashed and showed everybody that they weren't AAA assets. And I, I kind of suspect that that's what will happen with the uh, special drawing rights of the IMF. When um, when they release them, let's say they release IMFs uh, or um, special drawing rights, SDRs, as the world's reserve currency, and that frees the countries whose currencies are the constituent parts of special drawing rights to basically create as much new currency as they want to. You know, they're out from under the whole, oh, our currency has to be strong thing, you know, and they can, um, they can then just devalue their currencies to the horizon. Um, what does that do to um, SDRs? It probably makes SDRs weak along with the currencies that are being created in basically infinite quantities. So I don't see that as a solution. I think we have to go back to something like the gold standard where we, uh, you know, some Sunday night 
in the US, we just announced that uh, henceforth, the dollar is now just a name for one ten thousandth of an ounce of gold. And uh, gold and dollars are exchangeable at any government office. And, and uh, so going forward, the money supply is um, tethered to the increase in supply of gold. And you know, the amount of gold in the world grows by one or 2% a year. So all of a sudden we've got a sound currency again. Um, and that's what we're gonna have to do at some point. You know, that, that disadvantages people who trusted the government and who saved a lot of dollars because their bank account gets less valuable, the money under their mattress gets less valuable, and they're the ones who are hurt. But anybody who doesn't trust the government and buys a bunch of real stuff like gold and silver and farmland and rental houses, uh, the value of those things will go up on that Sunday night when the dollar is devalued versus gold. Um, and they make out. So that's a big part of the investment thesis. In other words, how you prepare for something like this is you, you get out of financial assets that depend on the value of the dollar or the euro and, or the yen, and you get into real stuff that has an intrinsic value. In other words, that creates value on its own, independent of the financial system. And that's what farmland does, you know, it has value. You can grow food on it in a rental house, you know, someone will pay you to live in there. Gold and silver are slightly different, but in a lot of ways better because they're the forms of money that, um, that we've used for 3000 years and that have held their value through all of that, you know, wars and revolutions and natural disasters. Um, and long dark ages, gold and silver stayed valuable the whole time. So as people figure that out, you know, they think about what is money and once their, their own money fails, um, they're gonna see that one place that people have hit out during crises since the Roman empire and before um, is still around. You know, you can buy gold and silver coins um, and, um, or, or you can buy mining stocks, you know, the, the miners who buy gold and silver or who dig gold and silver out of the ground. And those things will tend to go up in value when the national currency is going down in value. So that's, that's the investment thesis, basically. Get into real assets and then ride them while the currencies, wherever you are, whatever currency you're, you're transacting in, goes down in value and then sell them when there's a reset that, uh, that it takes your country back to a sound money system. And speaking of uh, national fiat uh, currencies, what's your take on this discussion now among all governments uh, pretty much around the world of the elimination of cash? I, I know Spain a few weeks ago was discussing a, a bill uh, that would definitively effectively eliminate cash in Spain. Uh, and so we have now this rush by nation states where the, each of their central banks are discussing creating these digital crypto national currencies. What do you think is interesting there? Well, I think um, that's always been a trend uh, in, in part because cash is a little bit inconvenient to use compared to a credit card. And as for these um, government cryptocurrencies, two things. One is, you know, that's the next logical step technologically. We, we should have national currencies operating on the blockchain like Bitcoin does because it's a more efficient way to do it. Um, but having said that, putting the dollar or the euro or the yen or some other fiat currency onto the blockchain doesn't change the fact that it's, it's fiat currency that is being created in excessive quantities and will go down in value over time. You'll just have a more efficient way to con 
um, transact in it while it's going down in value. So I, I don't see that you gain all that much um, in terms of the coming financial crisis. You know, we'll, we might have cr national cryptos, but there's still going to be a big currency crisis out there somewhere. And uh, I had just a few more questions. One on the timing. And I mean, you've already spoken on the timing and you've given a very wise answer. Nobody knows. It could be in this year. It could be in five years. They can still pull some tricks out. But I keep hearing a lot of uh, interesting things from, from some very serious people, some of my previous guests that keep talking about the fall, you know, September, October. November. Uh, inter I interviewed recently the very serious historian Edwin Black, who said he thinks we'll see conducts, conducts in action uh, in the fall that we would never have imagined. And I think he was alluding to the election. Other analysts uh, say that banks will begin defaulting, which will create a chain reaction. Uh, indeed, a small bank that I was using for a while here in Mexico, which is owned by the billionaire Hugo Salinas Price, who is a pro proponent, I think, you know, of sound money. Uh, the bank is called Banco Azteca, uh, and it's now the second bank that's on the verge of collapsing in Mexico. So we're starting to see these kinds of things uh, happen. And we also have American and international companies relentlessly declaring uh, bankruptcy. So do you see something really pushing us over the edge uh, in the fall? Or if not in the fall, do you see certain developments such as banks collapsing and, and uh, companies going under really kind of bringing the next phase of the collapse? Well, I see all that stuff happening. I, I just don't know when. <laughs> you know, it, it could easily happen in the fall, uh, in part because it, it coincides with the national election in the U.S., which might be really chaotic. And that could be the kind of thing, uh, kind of situation where politics scares the financial markets, which in turn make, pol make, make politics even crazier and you get a, a feedback loop that leads to some kind of a crisis. Could happen. Um, uh, but I've learned not to predict timing <laughs> of things because <laughs> I've been off by like five years on some predictions and, uh, and uh, that, that's painful. So I, I don't want to do that again because I'm not good at it. You know, I'm just terrible at, uh, at um, predicting the timing of anything. But you know, having said that, all of the stuff you just mentioned is probably going to happen, and it might be imminent. Uh, you just don't, you know, as Rick Rule, a, a, a major gold stock investor, likes to say, you don't want to mix up imminent and inevitable, because those are two very different things, and, and uh, mixing them up can hurt you. And uh, another thing that's on everyone's radar, I think, is civil uh, unrest, which is, you know, part of the breakdown in the economy that's it's happening in the U.S. But we've recently see, seen in Serbia things get really nasty, in Greece, uh, France, a little bit here in uh, Mexico. What are your thoughts on this talk of a second American civil war, as well as just civil unrest in general? Well, when you screw up your finances, you screw up your politics, which in turn leads to civil unrest. So this is a normal part of the currency crisis process. And uh, in the U.S. in particular, we're, um, we're becoming tribal. In other words, we've got these groups of people who will accept anything from their leaders and will accept nothing from the leaders of, of the other tribes. And they see each tribe sees the other tribe as kind of subhuman. So that is a prelude to civil unrest and civil war. When, when you can dehumanize the other people who disagree with you on, a, a, on big issues, 
it makes it really easy to escalate from verbal jousting to actual violence. And we're seeing that now in the US. And, and so this could easily metastasize. But I, I'll tell you what, if, um, if you've got Black, Live, Black Lives Matter and Antifa in the street against guys from the Tea Party, you know who's laughing is the 1%. <laughs> you know, the, the aristocracy that, uh, that now rules this country is in har- and is harvesting the rest of us loves it when they can pit working class people against other working class people. And their greatest nightmare is that um, the 99% putting, putting aside their differences and seeing that they all have a common enemy which is the uh, the 1%, the aristocracy that uh, has set things up so that they get richer no matter what, and the rest of us get poorer on balance no matter what. So rather than a civil war, I think it's very possible that we have a kind of a French Revolution scenario where the peasants pick up their pitchforks and their torches and head to the castle and drag the aristocrats out. And, you know, in the French Revolution, they beheaded those guys. Hopefully, it's just a financial version of that this time where they, uh, they redistribute wealth in some way. And, you know, I hope we do it by um, antitrust laws rather than massively higher taxes because antitrust enforcement would allow us to maintain a capitalist society that would actually increase competition while um, increasing opportunity for regular people but massively higher taxes and wealth confiscation and capital controls and all the things that usually come with a um, um, political revolution from the left, they, they lead nowhere except to, um, to more degradation. You know, you get a further revolution after a socialist revolution. Uh, you know, historically, France did that. They had a revolution in the um, the late 1700s, and they had a hyperinflation after that, and then ended up with Napoleon and a whole generation of uh, European war. Um, Germany um, had a hyperinflation because the government basically just printed money without end, and they got Hitler. You know, so we, we don't want that kind of a process to operate in the U.S. or anywhere else. Uh, but historically. That kind of thing is possible when you make the mistakes we're making. So we really have to be careful, you know. If we uh, if we see in time that we have a common enemy and do something about it that actually enhances capitalist wealth creation instead of inhibiting it, then we might be okay. But um, odds are we don't do that. You know that that sounds too sane for today's world. <laughs> so. Um, Again, you know, it comes back to precious metals. The gold and silver are how you protect yourself from stuff like this. So really, no matter what we do in the short run, it's going to be very chaotic. It's going to be very scary. And that will play into the hands of precious metals. So you should see gold and silver go up while we work this stuff out. And the messier the workout is, the better that is for gold and silver. So that's one way you kind of make lemonade out of this situation, you know, and and, uh, hopefully people are figuring that out. Since more and more people are buying gold and silver, that, that implies more and more people are coming to the conclusions that we're discussing right now. Yeah, I would totally agree with you on the antitrust uh, issue. I think that's one of the, the biggest things that we would really need. But again, I'm not as optimistic uh, on that point. And as well as you mentioned, the revolutionaries like Black Lives Matter and, and uh, Antifa, I don't think a lot of people on the street 
realize that they're getting funding from the same monopoly capitalists that they're <laughs> going against. So it's like, come on, that's not very revolutionary. So um, are there any uh, other issues that have that perhaps that are on your mind that we have failed to mention? You know, we're, we're at the point now where um, the, the number of companies in the S&P 500 trading at more than 10 times revenues has equaled the number that we're trading that way in the year 2000 at the very peak of the dot-com bubble, which is sort of the iconic stock bubble. So we're at a very dangerous time for equities right now. And it's possible that the central banks of the world will step in and start buying stocks and push, push them even higher. But it's also possible that we get a horrific crash pretty soon. So if you're among the people who are day trading on Robinhood or something out there, be careful, look at history, and don't expose yourself any more than you have to, to do the trading you want to do. Because um, we, we could see another flash crash at a minimum, like we saw this past March, you know, where, where stocks lose 20 or 30% in a matter of a few days. Uh, but we could see something worse, too, based on historical trading patterns with this kind of overvaluation. So, you know, if you're in the stock market, and you're enjoying a lot of capital gains right now, Remember, they can evaporate in a heartbeat, so be extra careful. And if you have for us uh, any final thoughts as well, you already mentioned some really key tips for individuals, many of which I apply myself. You've mentioned that for precious metals, getting into precious metals to protect your purchasing power and your wealth, um, possibly cryptocurrency, any money you want to put in that you're not afraid to lose, I think, farmland, uh, rental properties you mm -hmm. mentioned, I think also having a good network uh, of people uh, and stocks are not my forte, but I think it, on your website, you've been talking about certain, the potential of mining stocks. So um, anything else you want to, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Well, just, just generally, th this is a kind of a unique time in history. We're, we're at the very end of a, a massive 80 year long financial experiment that is failing. And when, when something that long, that's gone on for that long and has created these kinds of distortions fails, um, you, you get things that would have seemed absolutely crazy to people um, prior to the start of the, the system's failure. So, you know, don't extrapolate the tranquility of the past into the future because it's going to be a lot more tempestuous than than the past 10 or 20 years has prepared us for. And uh, if you go into the next decade expecting that kind of thing, um, you won't be horrified. <laughs> you know, you'll just get what you expect and you'll be able to deal with it a lot more easily. So that, that's the general advice I would give people these days. All right. Your website is dollarcollapse.com. And I think your most recent book is The Money Bubble, which you co-authored yes. with James uh, Turk, which is an excellent book. And I think pretty much everything you wrote in, in there, it's, it's unfolding now. And there are a lot of good tips uh, there. And I also urge listeners to subscribe to your free newsletter that you send out on a, I think, weekly uh basis with useful information on the economy. Are there any other websites or projects of yours we should be aware of? No, that covers it right now. All right, John, I, I wish you and all of our listeners the best in surviving this historic uh, economic collapse. I know the IMF or World Bank said it hasn't been this bad since 1870, 150 years ago. So I, have, I hope uh, everyone uh, does the best that they can weathering the storm. And thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thanks, Hervoye.
I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.